Hello, I'm James Hurst. Welcome to BFBS Rep, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. It is one year since the Taliban marched back to power in Afghanistan. They told the world it would be different than when they'd last ruled. So what is life like now in Afghanistan? People look at you with fear, really. Girls aren't allowed to be educated and women aren't allowed to work and they are being brutalised. And what of the Taliban's promises that Afghanistan wouldn't return to being a terrorist safe haven? They pledged to the Americans only last summer that they would not allow al-Qaeda to operate from Afghanistan. And here they're caught red-handed, safeguarding the most wanted al-Qaeda terrorists. We'll assess 12 months on what the fall of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan has meant for our security. And we'll hear how, a year later, some people who worked with British forces are still trying to get to safety. Those that I was in contact with who weren't able to get out, some have actually sadly been murdered, some remain in hiding, and others who were able to get out, their families have since been targeted by the Taliban in retribution. Exactly a year ago, on this programme, we were following the advance of the Taliban in Afghanistan. A month since NATO forces had left the country, the militants were just starting to take some district capitals, and an internal US government assessment was warning that the Taliban could take the Afghan capital and with it the country within one to three months. In fact, it took just three days. We are trapped. We we cannot do anything. Kabul is captured. Afghanistan political leaders gave up. Hopefully, I won't have to pay the price for joining a government position. I might face consequences that I never even dreamed of. One year on from those chaotic events, we are better able to assess the long-term consequences. Today, a former British Army officer will tell us how life has changed for former interpreters, some who escaped Afghanistan in that chaos and others who did not. And a former head of counter-terrorism at the Ministry of Defence will help us assess what the Taliban's return to power has meant for our security. But to understand that, we must first understand how the fall of the Republic has changed Afghanistan itself. The Taliban made many promises, including rights to education and work for women, free and independent media, and that they had pardoned anyone who fought against them. The experiences of the journalist Lynn O'Donnell suggest those pledges were worth very little. She's reported from Afghanistan for many years. When she returned last month and registered her presence as a foreign journalist, Lynn's life was threatened by a senior official. Then she was taken from her guest house by the Taliban. They took me away to the headquarters of the intelligence agency. They kept me there for more than four hours. They shouted at me, berated me, told me that I had made up my stories and I was um, told that if I didn't make a public confession that I would be jailed. And so what did you do? I made a public confession. (laughs) I was like, okay. First I said, oh, sorry. And they said, no, that's not good enough. And then it was like, I'm really, really sorry. And I said, no. So then they dictated. I got out my notebook and a pen. I wrote down as they dictated what it was that they wanted me to say. They checked it with their boss who was on the phone with them. They tried to tell me the boss was a woman and then put the boss on speakerphone, not a woman. And then after the tweets had been sent, they made me record video a confession that I 
not a journalist. I make everything up. I have no sources and that I hadn't been coerced into making this confession. And as I said those last words, I took my headscarf off my head, tied it around my neck, held it up like a noose and said, and I haven't been coerced into making this confession. It was um, a totally unpredictable experience with men who um, project their power through brutality and violence and who have a history of taking uh, foreigners uh, hostage. But it was also darkly, satirically comic because they are incompetent and stupid. It was possible that I would never be seen again, that I would be shot, whatever. Anything was possible. But what am I going to do? Cower in a corner? Wrong girl. You know Afghanistan well. How has this new Taliban rule changed life for ordinary Afghans from what you were able to see briefly? Well, you know, as soon as I arrived at the airport, I sensed and found a very different city. Kabul is, you know, one of the busiest places that I have ever lived and worked in. Joyful, dynamic, um, frantically busy, gridlock traffic from early in the morning to late in the evening restaurants and cafes filled and people shopping, going places, meeting with each other. That's all over. With my driver, we spent a couple of hours driving all over the city because I wanted to see what it was all like. It's joyless. There is no money. So the restaurants and the cafes are largely empty. The streets are empty. Instead of it taking you an hour, an hour and a half to get somewhere, it takes you 10 minutes. People look at you as a with fear really and and approach to talk to you with real caution but everywhere I went people wanted to tell me how bad things are for them you know no food no work no money real oppression the economic crisis and and how that is affecting people that that seems fairly clear and simple but you talked about people with fear in their eyes. What, what do you sense that fear is? Um, I believe that the Taliban, are, they're very sophisticated with surveillance. So the surveillance is, it's administered with brutality. So for instance, Monday this week, it was Ashura Day. This is the most important day of the year for Shiite Muslims. And the internet and all telecommunications in most parts of Kabul were closed down on Monday. Um, and in the lead up to that, there've been a lot of attacks on uh, Shiite mosques and community centers and neighborhoods. That This is the brutality. I think that what they are doing also is instituting a neighborhood watch style system of surveillance where people spy on and report on each other. The Taliban said early on that they had pardoned those who'd fought against them. What, what's been the reality for people like former soldiers and police from the Republic? They've been hunted down and murdered. Many of them have been forced to flee the country. Um, many of them are in hiding in places like Quetta over the border in Pakistan. Um, but in Afghanistan, all over the country, they are being hunted down and, and killed. One of the other early pledges from a senior member of the Taliban was that they wanted an inclusive government and, and that that should include women. What is the shape of the government now? There are 41 listed sanctioned terrorists who are Pashtun Sunni men in the cabinet. 
There are no women. I think there is one Hazara. That's about it. There's no inclusivity. There's no women. There's no, you know, it remains a a gang of misogynistic drug-dealing killers. That's who's running Afghanistan. You've reported on Afghanistan since before the US-led invasion of 2001. Is there anything different about this Taliban regime than the last one? Well, they're worse, I think. They've come in with the backing of Pakistan and China and Russia and Iran, who were all very happy to see the American-led coalition leave. But they've also come in with death lists and with a vengeance. They feel they have impunity. They have impunity. Nobody in the world is doing anything at all about the fact that Girls aren't allowed to be educated and women aren't allowed to work and they are being brutalised. I can't see any consequences for the Taliban in that. So it's very different, but in, in my view, it's it's worse. It's more brutal and the brutality is without consequence. The journalist Lynn O'Donnell with her experience of Afghanistan 12 months after the return to power of the Taliban. Well, Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark is here once again. Michael, Lynn talks there about there being no serious challenge to the Taliban from the outside world. We do know there are still pockets of armed resistance in parts of Afghanistan. Do you think that could ever seriously challenge the Taliban government? Not really. I mean, the previous Taliban government never completely united the country because Afghanistan is very hard to unite. The centre of resistance is the famous Panjshir Valley, uh, where the National Resistance Front operate, and they are led by the the son of the man who is known as the Lion of Panjshir, who fought with the Mujahideen against the Russians, and and that son, Ahmed Massoud, he's realistic enough to say, look, we know we can't take over the government, but the fact is we can fight and resist, we can create a civil war to the point where the Taliban will have to negotiate, they will have to soften their their stance. Now, I think that's pretty optimistic, but he represents, uh, Ahmed Massoud, represents the only realistic opposition to the Taliban, other than the uh, ISIS, the Islamic State, who regard the Taliban as far too moderate. The whole reason that British and other NATO troops deposed the Taliban and spent 20 years in Afghanistan was for our own security. Al-Qaeda had used the country as a safe haven for training terrorists, plotting a series of deadly attacks that culminated in 9-11. A year ago, the Taliban promised they would not allow Afghan soil to be used to attack foreign countries again. Yet it turned out Al-Qaeda's leader, Ayman al-Zawahiri, had moved back into Kabul and was living in a house apparently linked to a minister in Afghanistan's new government. So, one year on, what does the fall of the Afghan Republic and return of the Taliban mean for our own security? Let's bring in retired Major General Chip Chapman, former head of counter-terror at the UK Ministry of Defence. Chip, I mean, it, the Afghan Taliban were never perceived as a direct threat to the UK or the US. It was always those international terror groups who they sheltered. So what is your assessment on whether the threat to us from Afghanistan has changed in the last year. In the wake of pitting, a raft of headlines declared at the time that the terrorist threat was the highest ever. 
But for that to be objectively true, JTAC would have needed to have raised the threat level. And they didn't. And the threat level is still substantial. That's at level three. So if you look at the year since pitting and the time that the Taliban have been in power, we've only had one attack, that's a lone actor attack on Sir David Amos, and the failed uh, Liverpool episode. Now, in terms of Zawahiri, Zawahiri gave buyer or loyalty to Akhundzada, who's the Taliban leader. And this really sets the scene for two things that can be true at the same time. The first one is that Zawahiri and AQ Corps may have been given increased comfort and ability to communicate in the last year or before he was taken out. That indeed included a lecture series where he actually demented the state of the jihadist movement and rallied and raged against those who had broken pledges of allegiance. So that's the first thing. But at the same time, and as a July 22 UN report stated, AQ are not viewed as posing an immediate international threat and it lacks an external operational capability and does not currently wish to cause the Taliban international difficulty or embarrassment. So there's no additional threat. They're still inspired by threats. That remains the key threat. But, I mean, I've got that, that UN report here as well. It says Al-Qaeda intends to be recognised again as the leader of global jihad. We know Al-Qaeda was never eradicated from Afghanistan. We know they have people there. As you say, um, ISK also have a presence. Do we have any idea of numbers and whether those numbers crucially are growing? Well, we do. But before answering that directly, the context is that in the July 21 um, US reports, both the CIA Director Burns and Avril Haines, who's the Director of National Intelligence, both said that AQ and IS lacked the capacity to attack the homeland and are no longer the most dangerous transnational terror group. And that is why uh, regional terrorism or the threat of regional terrorism and its concerns is more important for the spillover that occurs. And to give you a, the, the complete answer to the numbers, uh, the uh, ISK numbers may be between 1,500 and 4,000, mainly concentrated in East Afghanistan. AQIS is a lot less, 100 and, between 100 and 400. But these groups do shapeshift all the time. Let me just play you what Tom Tugan had to chairs the Foreign Affairs Committee, had to say after the killing of Ayman al-Zarahiri. It's ex absolutely essential for the British people that we don't have a uh, safe haven for terror in uh, Central Asia again. You know, we know the price of that. We saw the price 20, 21 years ago. And so I think what the UK needs to be doing is making sure that we have the alliances that we need, but we also have the capabilities to act where we must act alone. He talks there about the capability to act alone uh, i guess the most likely way would be air power as we did in iraq and syria against is i mean should we be considering an op shader for afghanistan if we see that those terrorist numbers are growing i think you need to ask a different question really now the uk crossed the rubicon in august 15 with a drone strike on a chap called Junaid hussein uh, who was a a prolific English language social media propagandist and a cyber hacker. But prior to that, uh, due to the caveats from the Attorney General on proportionality, legitimacy, necessity, but more importantly, imminency, we couldn't prove that a threat was imminent at range. We could not either take on that threat, neither could we give intelligence information to a third party, we'll call it the Americans, who could then deal with that threat. Since then, we've gone to a concept of active self-defense. That's a pattern of activities that prove a threat, and that is sufficient. 
So it's not a question of should we do another shader, it's the question of be a good ally, have partners, proxies and patients, uh, rather than going to a, a solutioneering that says we must have another op shader. Michael, what is the Western view on dealing with possible terror threat from, from Afghanistan? Is the, the, the strategy containment, or do you think we will see more airstrikes if we see terrorist numbers growing? Well, uh, yeah, as Chip said, I mean, the numbers seem quite low at the moment, and the, ac- the, the, the sort of locus of activity against us is pretty low from Afghanistan. And I'm, I'm fairly sure we won't get involved in airstrikes unless that changes quite dramatically, because the way terrorism has, has developed in our counter terrorist strategy since 2015, which, remember, is very successful internationally. We are very successful at counterterrorism. And it works best with intelligence-led policing and actually being proactive at our borders in intelligence terms and within our own communities. So that's, that's done us very well. Um, really since 2005. I mean, it can fail, of course it can. Every terrorist attack represents a, a, a failure of sorts. But the incidence is very low. And if you compare the incidence of terrorist attacks in Britain to those of our continental partners over the last 10 years, we are just about the lowest of all of the likely target countries. Uh, Chip, Michael mentioned in intelligence. Briefly, do you think we are getting enough intelligence out of Afghanistan at the moment when we don't have the presence on the ground? Well, I think you can lever regional relationships to ensure that um, you have that intelligence. And I think that's the reason that those TTP senior commanders were taken out this week. Because wherever you are in the world, the same things apply in terms of penetration of these groups. You compromise them either for reasons of revenge, ideology, money or ego. And all those things can apply in Afghanistan or across the border in Pakistan. Uh, Michael Clark, let's move the focus to ISK, the the Afghan splinter of the Islamic State terror group. They are fighting against the Taliban. Uh, The Taliban say Afghanistan now has a national army of 130,000. I mean, is, is Afghanistan strong enough to stop itself becoming an IS state as we, we saw in large chunks of Iraq and Syria? Uh, yes, I'm sure it would be, um, because uh, the IS state, the caliphate as they called it, it was quite carefully planned and they undermined it quite carefully before the attack began. And then they found, of course, that the Iraqi army and the officers basically ran away and et cetera, et cetera. That's not going to happen in the same way in Afghanistan. And I think that ISK have the power to be a real nuisance. They have the power to create a like a three-sided uh, civil war between the Taliban, ISK, and the old what's what's left of the old Northern Alliance that we were talking about earlier. But I don't think the Taliban are going to lose power to either of those opposition groups. It's certainly not in a military sense. Chip Chapman, if you were still at the Ministry of Defence, uh, what would you be saying right now, briefly, to the Defence Secretary about? what you expect to happen down the line for Afghanistan and, and, and what we should be doing about it? I would say that prediction is difficult, particularly about the future, and I would give him scenarios, not certainties, because everything really comes back to what Taliban will eventually turn up in what time frame, and whether uh, they are going to still emphasise unity or whether that they are going to emphasise ultimately some sort of integration. But the key question is ultimately, can Afghanistan fulfill the core functions of a state because it is in fragile and failing states that most terrorism endures. 80% of terrorism in the world occurs in those states. 
Terrorism, though, has been on a downward trajectory since 2014 when IS was at its, uh, at its zenith. Chip Chapman, thank you very much for your thoughts today. Now, as the Taliban swept into Kabul a year ago, Britain and its allies flew troops back into Afghanistan. They secured the airport and carried out the largest military evacuation operation since World War II. Former interpreters for British forces were prioritised under the UK's Arab scheme. Almost 1,000 Arab-eligible Afghans plus their families were brought out in that month but many were left behind. The government says a total of 10,000, including family members, have now arrived in the UK, but that around 650 people who have been approved for relocation here remain in Afghanistan. They include this former interpreter for British forces. I'm really afraid and uh, I'm still hiding. My message to the British Army, we saved the life of the British soldiers and now it was the time that they have to save my life and my family lives. Another 200 people who have been told they can come to the UK are stuck in other countries. This man has been told he's eligible but is still waiting in Pakistan for final British security checks to be completed. I have been very loyal to the British Army when I was working as a petrol interpreter. Then why? Then why they are delaying my case? They have to give me explanation that while I'm here for almost six months. And there are thousands of applications still awaiting processing. Former British Army officer Ash Alexander-Cooper has been working with a number of former Afghan interpreters and others at risk over the last year, trying to get them to safety. In August, you know, exactly a year ago, uh, I was working to get about 30 people very personally that I knew out um, who were you know, likely to be murdered very quickly the moment we left. Uh, but I was in contact with many hundreds of others because through social media, I was getting daily sort of requests and, and appeals for help from people who I either knew or knew of who had very legitimate real claims uh, and needs to get out, but, but was very sort of hamstrung in what I could do to help them. In the 12 months since, what has happened for those people? Thankfully, that those 30 that I was trying to help, I did manage to get out by hook or by crook. And they are now in the UK in various states of settlement, as it were. Unfortunately, since the last flight went out, there is nobody that I know. Um, I know there are some who have been able to get out um, to either third countries or, or find their way eventually to the UK. But from my personal perspective, those that, that I was in contact with who weren't able to get out during August are either still there some have actually sadly been murdered um, because they weren't able to get out. Some remain in hiding and others uh, who were able to get out, their families have since been targeted by the Taliban in retribution for the fact that the principal was able to escape and, and pretty serious injuries inflicted on, on those that are left behind who are associated with uh, the most vulnerable person or people that we were able to extract. Are these interpreters, are they other people who were at risk because of their involvement? Uh, those who are left behind as a mixture of interpreters and others who worked for the British government in different ways. Um, those we were able to get out were a mixture of you know, female journalists and um, those who served in, in the military and other parts of the establishment that the British helped to train over, over those 20 years. I think the challenge is, that particularly for those left behind, you know, I have a copy of the email here that was sent to all of them who, who received Arab numbers, you know, effectively the number that said that your case has been accepted. Um, the language in that last email that was dated uh, the 29th of August last year effectively says, we're sorry, 
if, as we think, you were not able to reach the evacuation point in time, if you were approved for evacuation, you will be supported if you wish to relocate to the United Kingdom. Now, those seem like very simple words, but for those who left behind and who've had, in, in many cases, not a single follow-on email or call or message from the UK government, they feel very abandoned and very confused as to what actually uh, we are going to do to honour the promises we made to them. Um, and it's pretty desperate. The government says it has enabled thousands more to settle in the UK since. Is it the case that the problem right throughout has been getting to a point where you can get safely out of Afghanistan or are the hurdles beyond that? I mean, getting out of Afghanistan is clearly a huge issue for people. And even if they're able to get out illegally or otherwise across borders into third countries like Pakistan, if they don't have the requisite paperwork to remain, then the chances are they'll be deported back to Afghanistan with the Taliban then clearly being made aware who is being deported back into the country who tried to escape. And then their situation is, is likely to be even worse on return. I think the system, though, is has just been overloaded from day one and our uh, approach to it has just been a little bit too little too late. So you are still in contact with people who are trying to get approval to come to the UK? I'm in contact with many people who have had approval, but then they've heard nothing since. And that's that's what's more frustrating for them is they just don't know what to do. I mean, it's a really mixed bag. You know, some of the people who have been extracted, you know, when we get it right, we really do get it brilliantly right. Uh, there are some people who've settled in, in housing and then they, we've managed to find them jobs and, and they feel fulfilled and able to give back. And they're off the, you know, the universal credit system as quickly as they could be because they want to give back and not be a burden on the UK. And they've asked for nothing other than another chance. Um, for some, though, who remain a year on in hotels and in some cases completely split up. You know, I've known families that have been split in half, you know, not something they wanted to do, still traumatised from their experience last year. 12 months on, what do you think more the UK could be doing right now? Because if the difficulty is, is getting out of the country, that, that is simply something that we have no no influence over anymore isn't it i think the thing that we could do a lot better is communicate you know half the battle and the stress and the the frustration of these people is that nobody's talking to them and i recognize the numbers are quite large uh but we we owe it to them i think we've made promises that if we didn't have a an intent to keep them at least we should be communicating explaining why it's taking so long but to you know, just let them know where they stand in the process because, you know, just a wall of silence is, is almost more damaging than having made, made, made any promises in the first place. Former Army officer Ash Alexander-Cooper, the Ministry of Defence says it is investing in a new system and adopting a new approach to casework, uh, helping them to process eligible people more quickly. Now, last November... NATO published a page and a half summary of lessons learned from the end of its Afghanistan mission. On the evacuation, it says that NATO allies demonstrated the capability to carry out a massive evacuation operation under extreme circumstances. However, the evacuation, while supported by NATO, was not conducted under NATO command and control. And it goes on to say NATO should consider how to strengthen capabilities to support short-notice non-combatant evacuation operations for the future. Uh, Michael Clark, is that NATO really saying this could have gone a lot better? 
Certainly, yes. Uh, I mean, it says it was the operation was conducted under extreme circumstances, and we all know they shouldn't have been extreme circumstances. I mean, in our case, the whole Arab scheme, remember, it's called the Afghan Relocation and Assistance Policy. And the scheme was not prepared for the what happened to the fall of Kabul. The, the forces, British, American and other European forces, did very well in the situation that they found themselves. And, you know, politicians concentrated on how well the forces did. But they used that to distract from the fact that they shouldn't have been in that position. Let's get a final thought from you then. Amid the chaos of the Taliban's return, President Joe Biden said a year ago that those events strengthened his view that it was the right thing to pull US and with them NATO forces out. One year on, what's your assessment of whether it was the right or wrong decision? I think it was undoubtedly the wrong decision, which was originally taken by Trump and he made it worse because the the Afghan policy was undoubtedly, it was failing. We all could see that, but it was failing slowly. It could have been rescued. It could have provided more options and it didn't cost very much, either in lives or in money. So we could have carried on and tried to find a better outcome in the years to come. Instead of which Trump decided we have to stop. And the way Biden then handled it turned a disaster into a catastrophe. In my view, you look at Afghanistan as it now is, what's happened in the year, what's happened to the reputations of the Western world because of it and the failure to keep almost any of our promises. This is what strategic failure really looks like. This is strategic failure, full stop. But some people uh, would be asking, where would we be now if we hadn't pulled out? Would we be back in a war with the Taliban? No, no, because the Taliban wouldn't be there. We would be in a policy that was costing us very little, but not doing very well. And we would have been saying to ourselves, look, we've got to get hold of this policy. We've got to do something with it rather than just walk away. And if we are going to walk away, then we've got to walk away over a longer period. But what Trump did when he initiated discussions with the Taliban was to say, I am going to leave no matter what. Now, what can you offer me? And of course, they offered him words and nothing else. So it was for a man who wrote a book called The Art of the Deal. He began that deal in the worst possible position. He gave it all away and then started to try to negotiate. So that was why that was how he he turned a, a slowly failing policy into a disaster, which became a catastrophe. And and some of us, you know, were talking about this at the time. And I have to say, before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I wrote an article that had the headline: "The road from Kabul to Kiev may turn out to be a short one." Indeed, it is. Michael, thank you very much indeed, and thanks to all our guests. We are back with another BFBS sit rep next Thursday. But before then, if you want to hear much more from Lynn O'Donnell and her extraordinary story of being held by the Taliban and forced to record a fake confession, there is an extra edition of the BFBS sit rep podcast online now. It is a real insight into the group that now leads Afghanistan. For now, though, from me, James Hurst, thanks for listening and goodbye.